Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. Every other Thursday we feature just one classic story from the vaults. We ask that you keep the historical context in mind. Today, in 2021, there's a different consciousness. We've always asked storytellers to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible, and yet to tell their stories with as much compassion as possible. Even so, I'm sure the storytellers and the host might have worded some of what they said on these old episodes differently if they'd been recorded more recently. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, a story that Jordan Sargent first shared on the podcast in May of 2014, Here's Jordan Now, with a story we call Murder Jar. So, uh, when I was in second grade, I had one real friend. We called him the bad blonde kid. And him and I both had that ultra-thin, silky blonde hair that only like prepubescent boys have, and charming smiles that hid the fact that we were usually up to no good. We weren't really bad kids, we were kind of just dickheads that took pranks a little too far. Like, at recess, we started a club called the Bee Harassers Club. And we didn't harass bees, we harassed other kids with bees. We captured, <laughs> we captured them in empty water bottles, and when they got good and pissed off, we'd release them on someone. And we, we did shit like that all year until summer came, and I lost touch with Blondie. I figured his family moved away. And uh, I hung around with the neighborhood kids, and we got in trouble here and there, but I never had a friend that I could really conspire with, like Blondie until I got to junior high and I met this kid named Jake. We were kind of unlikely friends. I was a chubby, long-haired pothead and he was a tall, pretty boy, but he had that same fucking smile as Blondie. 
Jake and I, like, we were in junior high now, so our antics stepped up a little bit. One time we got drunk and lit a bonfire in his bedroom, and another time we shot the windows out of his family's snowplow truck with a BB gun. <laughs> but one day towards the end of junior high, we were like 15, and I was just dicking around with Jake and his younger brother Alex, and he turned to me and he said, do you remember the Bee Harassers Club? I said, yeah, man, that was so shit. <laughs> I, I didn't really remember Jake from second grade. Maybe he was such a dick now because I bullied him back then. I said, did we ever get you? He looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, with the bees, did we ever get a bee to sting you? And he didn't know what to say, so I changed the subject. And I said, what do you think ever happened to that blonde kid? And he looked at me like I had lost my mind. And he said, that blonde kid that was your best friend in second grade? That was me, you fucking asshole. <laughs> Apparently, I, I thought Jake reminded me of Blondie because he was Blondie. <laughs> I lost touch with him after second grade because his parents split up and he went and spent that summer and pretty much every summer since with his dad. And in fact, as we were having this conversation, we were getting ready for his dad to come pick us up because that summer I was gonna go with Jake and Alex to spend the first two weeks and then again the last two weeks of summer with their dad, Rob. I never really connected with an adult before I met Rob, but I clicked with him instantly. We got along just as well as I did with Jake and Alex. He was a drummer and I was a guitar player, but he was a fundamentalist Christian and the only band he liked to talk about was Striper, the Christian glam metal band from the 80s. <laughs> I could overlook that because he also liked South Park and he quoted Dumb and Dumber and Beavis and Butthead. So we're driving down to Rob's house and making fast friends. He only saw his kids a couple weeks a year so it was really important for him to be their buddy and by the time we got to his house he was like a 40 year old member of our crew. Uh, so we're staying with Rob and his wife Sarah who's a gorgeous tall southern woman and she drove a five-speed Mini Cooper, which isn't nearly as cool as I thought it was back then. And, <laughs> and they had a stepdaughter named Amanda. She was kind of a shy, sad, grumpy girl. I never even had a full conversation with her while I was there. But Rob was a active member in a pretty large church and for the next two weeks we were his trophy kids. We went with him on Sunday morning and he started making the rounds, introducing us to everyone. Hey, these are my kids and their, their friend from Pennsylvania. And nobody cared. <laughs> so we had a few hours to decompress after the first Sunday morning service and then we had to go back for a Sunday night service. And the introductions got more elaborate. These are my sons and their friend from Pennsylvania. They play guitar at their church back home. And again, nobody really cared. But with every band practice or weeknight service and Bible study, the introductions grew more and more elaborate. These are my sons and their friend from Pennsylvania. They play guitar at their church. They've won awards. Oh my God, they're awesome. And finally, the last Sunday before we were gonna leave, the pastor stopped in the middle of a sermon about having faith and he said, you know friends, there's some boys here from Pennsylvania and they've really got the spirit of God in them. Come on up here boys. God has called you to heal the sick. I grew up in a Pentecostal church like one step below those motherfuckers who play with rattlesnakes so I'd seen some crazy shit and maybe I was magic, I don't know. So. <laughs> 
we prayed over these people, one person after another, for about an hour. And they said they felt God move and that they were healed. And the pastor said they were healed. They still needed their wheelchairs and the oxygen tanks. But maybe it took a couple hours. I don't know. We went home after those two weeks with a big scoop of self-righteous cockiness on top of our already dickish attitudes. And for the first time, I couldn't wait for summer to be over because at the last two weeks, I got to go back to Rob's house. So finally, summer ended and Rob came back to pick us up. But this time, there was kind of a weirdness in the car. There was no jokes, no striper. It was just a weird fog around. And after a couple hours of a relatively quiet ride, he spoke up and he said, you know guys, we've been having some problems with Amanda. She's been spreading a lot of rumors and it's causing a lot of trouble, so just kind of leave her alone, don't get her worked up while you're down here. When we got to Rob's house, Rob and his wife Sarah tried to act like everything was alright, but the fog was there, it was at the church, it was pervasive. And after a few days, he finally pulled my buddy Jake aside and explained to him exactly what was going on. And Amanda had started telling some friends and family members that Rob had molested her and that he had been for years. And the rumors spread through the town fast, but nobody believed it. Rob was an upstanding member of the community and his church, and he was the pastor's best friend in a leadership role. There was even legal action, and Rob was found to be not guilty. Nobody believed it was possible, except me. I didn't have any reason to believe it, really. I never even had a full conversation with Amanda. But I could see it in her sad, shy eyes now. And I'd seen Rob's manipulation firsthand. He turned me from a chubby pothead into the healing hands of God in two weeks. So the next day when Rob and Sarah were at work, I finally had a chance to sit down and talk to Amanda. And all I could do was hope that she would say something first, but she didn't. She looked over at me, and all I could say was, Hey, kid, I'm going to fix this. And I don't know why the fuck I said that, because I couldn't fix it. I'm a dumbass kid. The, her friends, her family, judges, everybody decided that she was making it up. And I should have left it there as just a, an ill-advised empty promise from a fuck-up. But I was still on this helping hands of God hero kick, so I couldn't. And over the next two weeks, it became kind of a mantra. Every time I would see her alone, I would say, Hey, kid, I'm going to find a way to fix this. And when I would see her with Rob or Sarah around, I would just give her a real quick, Hey, kid. And she knew what I meant. One time, she even cracked a smile because I gave a shit, and that was worth something, at least. Alex didn't seem to notice anything weird in the air. And Jake didn't say anything to me, but I could see it weighing on him as the weeks drew on. He was getting stiff and tense, and his eyes were glazed over and sinking deeper into his face. None of us could do anything about it, because no one could help. So it was all I could do to muddle through the next two weeks, repeating this mantra to Amanda and to myself. On Friday, before we were going to leave, I waited until I knew that Rob and Sarah had gone to work before I got out of bed. And when I came down the stairs, I saw Amanda coming in, and she was obviously shaken up. She had tears in her face, so I went outside to see what had her so worked up. 
and I saw Jake sitting in a rocking chair with his jaw clenched tight. I said, Jake, what the fuck is going on? And he just said, he didn't even look up at me. He just said, dude, drop it. So I went to find Amanda, but she had locked herself in her room. So I figured that she had confided in Jake, but he wasn't having any of it. So I just had this one last day to get through and we could go home. So I went and found Alex, who was still oblivious, and we went out and dicked around in the woods for a little while and, until he saw a spider and decided we should go in. I mean, it was a big-ass spider, but it seemed less repulsive than being in the house at this point. And that night, after one last awkward dinner, I went to the cupboard to get a cup to pour myself a glass of coffee, and I saw this mug, and it said, World's Best Dad. And I about lost my fucking mind. World's best fucking dad. I had to do something. So I went up to the room that I was sharing with Jake and Alex, and I told Jake, dude, I know it's your dad, and you don't want to believe it, but she's not making this up. And that's when he told me what had happened that morning when Amanda was so upset. He said, I know, I talked to her, and I believe her. It's even been happening while we've been here. She's been sleeping on the couch, hoping that someone would hear him come downstairs. And neither of us knew what to do. Anyone who could help had already decided there was nothing to be helped. So we just sat there silently trading a sigh or a fuck. And at about midnight, Jake got up and went downstairs and he grabbed a 12-gauge shotgun out of Rob's gun cabinet. With his hands shaking, he put three shells into the shotgun and I said, dude, what the fuck are you gonna do with that? And he said, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna stay down here, and if my dad comes down the stairs, like Amanda says he has been, we'll catch him, and I'll hold him at gunpoint, and you can call the cops, and we'll make him admit to everything he's done. And at this point, it seemed as good of a plan as any, so I went into the next room, and I told Amanda the plan, and then we went and sat down and waited. But after just 15 minutes, Jake started shaking, tremors, like his whole body was in shudders. So I said, Jake, Give me the gun and you can be the one to call the cops. Now, I'd handled plenty of guns before. In fact, earlier in the summer, I fired this very gun. But when he handed it to me, something inside me broke. And this wasn't like when I was a kid and would lose my temper. I wasn't even angry. My anger was gone, or at least hiding. And I was cold and calm, and I was ready to take someone's life. And I didn't have the nerve to tell Jake then, but if Rob came down those stairs, there wasn't gonna be time to call the cops because I had a new plan. I was calm, but I was manic as fuck, and my mind was racing, coming up with plans and strategies. No, Your Honor, please, I'm just a 15-year-old boy, hundreds of miles from home. I was scared. I was defending a helpless girl and myself. You see, I knew that I could manipulate the situation just like Rob could, and if I pulled that trigger, I would walk away. We sat there for the next five hours. My mind never stopped racing. How many times should I shoot him? Where should I shoot him? Should I say something first? Maybe I should shoot him in the legs and then say something and then finish him off. Maybe Amanda might want to finish him off. No, that would look bad. You have to look like you're panicked. Stick to the fucking plan, Jordan. So we sat there until 5.45. And Rob didn't come down the stairs. And I didn't kill anyone that night. We went upstairs without telling Alex what had happened, and we packed up our shit, and at seven, we left with Rob to go home. And on the way home, I crashed. I came down harder than I ever had from any drug. 
my anger started boiling back up from that place it had been hiding. And Rob was sitting right in front of me, and that motherfucker didn't know how lucky he was to be alive. And I stayed in this angry, pissed-off, brooding state for the next few weeks. I had better days, but pissed-off was my baseline. I was one of four people in the world who knew Rob's secret, and I had failed Amanda with my only chance to fix it. But that didn't last very long, because only a few weeks later, Rob was at a men's church retreat with 400 other men, and Sarah was cleaning the house, and she found something. It's never been clear to me what it was she found. No one really knows. But whatever it was convinced her that Rob wasn't who he said he was, and that Amanda hadn't been lying. So she packed up her shit, and she took her daughter, and they left. But not before stopping at the retreat, finding Rob, and dropping him to the ground with a stun gun, telling him that she knew what he was, and that she was taking her daughter, and he could fuck off. So now, Amanda was safe, but I still felt like I had failed her. And now everybody knew, including Alex. So there we were, four kids, fucked up by the same events in completely unrelatable ways. None of us boys could understand what Amanda was feeling or what she would face in the future. And Amanda and I hadn't ever connected with Rob in the way that Alex and Jake had. They lost their father, their hero that they had on an ivory tower, just fell into an embarrassing heap of the worst kind of humanity. And then there was me. And I didn't lose my dad. I hadn't been traumatized or victimized, but I was still broken in a different way than the other three because I carried this deep fear of confrontation because I couldn't trust myself anymore. What if I went back to that place where my soul turns a cold shoulder to my hate? What if my anger goes back down into its hiding place and I just lose myself into that wave of cold, calm hate. What if a minor incident triggers that analytical, sadistic version of me? What if that's the real me? What if this bee harassing shit was an early sign? What if I'm a sociopath? What if I'm as much of a monster as Rob? And I fell into these weird fucking depressions where I blamed myself for not stopping Rob and for harboring this thing inside of myself. And it went on and on and at some point, I decided I wasn't past bartering with myself. So I told myself, all right, I'm going to take this jar that I had been saving coins in to get a tattoo. And I said, once there's enough money in this jar to go take care of Rob, I'll go take care of Rob. But until then, I'm putting him out of my mind. What I didn't anticipate was how quick I could turn hate into cash. Because pennies and nickels turned to ones and fives and tens, and very quickly there was $300 in there, which was enough for gas to and from Rob's house and a box of shotgun shells. But at that point, I had already started to feel a little better, because I had this murder jar that was like a teddy bear to me. <laughs> when I felt like I might hurt myself or somebody else, I could look at this murder jar and know I could just go fucking take care of Rob instead. I would wake up from a nightmare that I went back to that cold place and scan the room for my murder jar, and it was always there for me, until it wasn't. I came home one day and there was $100 missing out of my murder jar. And I knew where it was. My dickhead roommate had taken it. I didn't even care that he stole from me. I would have given him the money if he asked for it. But he didn't take my money. He took my comfort. It was like ripping the head off a kid's teddy bear. 
So I confronted him about it and he gave it back, but at this point it was just cash. You can't put a new head on an old teddy bear. So I realized maybe it's time for me to grow out of this fucking teddy bear. I took the $100 from my roommate and the 200 that was left in the jar and I went and got the tattoo that it was originally intended for. It's a silhouette of Bruce Campbell from Evil Dead holding a shotgun above his head and one hand as a chainsaw. It's fucking stupid. <laughs> but I don't have the murder jar anymore. And I don't feel like I need the murder jar anymore. Because here we are, the better part of a decade later, four kids fucked up by the same events. And Amanda is smart and strong, and she's going to be going off on her own soon, discovering that there's a beautiful world out there. And Alex is in college, and he's a poet and a painter, and he makes the most rad, fucked up paintings that only a deeply disturbed kid could make. <laughs> and Alex graduated college and married his high school sweetheart and is working for the man, making a better life for himself. And Rob, he lost his family, he lost his friends, he lost his house, and he lost his jaw. Because he got fucking cancer in his face and the doctors had to hack him up. <laughs> so the law failed Amanda and I couldn't fix it, but the universe took care of this one. <laughs> That's all for this week's Classic Risk Singles episode. Now, don't miss out on our regular full-length episodes. There's a brand new one every Tuesday. And everything you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com.